Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. I'm John Golia. And I'm Greg Fife. And we are the Flight Safety Detectives. We're just two guys who have spent most of their career with the National Transportation Safety Board investigating aircraft disasters and aviation safety issues all over the world. Yep, and this podcast is where we talk about everything from accidents, airplane technology, to the big business of aviation. We live and breathe aviation. My co-host John has been in the aviation business for more than 60 years. He was the first and only airframe and power plant mechanic to get a presidential appointment to the National Transportation Safety Board. And Greg is a former air safety investigator and GO team captain for the NTSB. He's investigated everything that flies worldwide since he started his career 40 years ago. And on top of that, he is a living legend of aviation inductee. So between John and myself, we have over 100 years of aviation safety experience. It's time to buckle up because it's going to be wheels up. Let's get this show in the air. Hello, John. It's good to be with you for another edition of Flight Safety Detectives. I finally got home from a uh, another week-long road trip. Spent a number of days in various parts of Tennessee, seeing the rolling hills, and unfortunately looking at uh, broken airplanes. So uh, it was good to get back on the road, but of course, with COVID, you can't do everything that you want to do. Can't talk to all the people that you need to talk to. But it was a good trip. Now I'm back to perfect weather here in Colorado. Beautiful blue sky. Sun is shining. Nice balmy breeze. How about you, John? How's Boston? Uh, Boston is gloomy, wet, in the, in the low to mid-40s. And uh, it's even gloomier. I took a ride up to one of my local airports, little airport, and they've had a recent addition, fences. Oh. They've closed the damn thing off. You can't get anywhere near the airplanes or near anything. Is that for safety or is that for animal wildlife control? I would not think it's for animals. I think it's for people animals. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, so it's it was depressing. Uh, so one by one, we're just closing off our airports, keeping people out, and and that's not what aviation has been successful doing in the past. Thanks to all the terrorists and all the rest of it. I was at a great little airport in uh, in Tennessee in a place called McMinnville. What a great little perfect country setting, you know the runway. Is a hundred feet wide, five thousand feet long. It's surrounded by farms, some rolling hills, and I'll, I'll tell you. I mean, it was a great airport. Very little traffic, unfortunately, but because of uh, the tornadoes that rolled through there about a year ago, all their hangar space. They got a three-year waiting list now because uh, when that tornado rolled through that part of uh, Tennessee. Of course, it wiped out over 200 aircraft and leveled the hangar, so guys are scattering to move their airplanes around, and so every hangar is full. But uh, there wasn't a lot of flying, and the weather was spectacular, you know, those you know blue sky day, light breeze, perfect day for flying, and the sunset. I love sunsets at little airports like that. They are just so cool. Yes, yes. Well, I'd like to remind all our listeners today that this show is being brought to you by Avemco Insurance and PAMA. And all of you folks out there that are looking to buy insurance for your airplane, you can profit by listening to the flight safety detectives because Avemco Insurance offers a 5% discount just for listening to the show. So if you're going to renew your insurance or you're new looking for insurance, give Avemco a call at 888 888- 879-0389 or visit Avemco on their website at avemco.com. 
Good morning, you're on the ground. It's Canadian 920. We're just coming up to Alpha Juliet. Hey, 920, runway 248, taxi. Well, you know, coming home from this trip, John, of course, I picked up the general aviation newspapers. There's a lot of magazines and newspapers sitting around little airports, so I grabbed one. And it's always entertaining to read. Uh, of course, it's informative. But I always love reading some of the accident reports that these guys pick up and talk about in the paper. And I want to read you several of them. And I want to talk about them after I'm done. Because you and I have made a comment on previous shows. Sometimes when we have pilots who do ridiculous things, and even though they survive and they bruise their ego, we call it stupid pilot tricks. We've also done a show about proper pre-flight and being prepared for the flight. And next thing I know, I'm reading some of these accidents and it's just, it, it's mind boggling that some of these people hold a pilot's license. The first one, the, the heading is plane sinks after pilot fails to remove gust lock. And it says the pilot reported that before the flight, he was rushed and did not follow the pre-flight checklist. Ding, ding, ding. There's a problem. During the takeoff with the Cessna 172 near maximum gross weight with three passengers on board, he noticed that it was accelerating slowly, but that the airspeed was sufficient. He applied elevator back pressure to rotate, but he immediately noticed the control lock was still in place on the yoke, and he attempted to remove it to no avail. He added that he did not recall trying to abort the takeoff or reduce power, the airplane overran the end of the runway at the airport in St. Petersburg, Florida, hit the water, turned over before sinking. And, of course, you look at an accident like that. Everyone who flies a Cessna airplane who's ever put a gust lock in the control yoke knows that it's a big metal flag on the end of this stiff piece of wire that you shove through the control yoke. How do you miss that? I, I mean, I, I, he must have been wearing, you know, colored glasses that filtered that out because that's real hard to miss. And, oh, by the way, besides not doing a pre-flight, it's obvious he didn't do a run-up with a flight control check right before takeoff. Wow. I mean, how how basic is that? I mean, it just... <laughs> I mean, it, and and the fact that he had three people on board, so he's maxed out. He's got, you know, decelerated performance or, or unexpected performance issue. And he decides, eh, it's accelerating slowly, but, you know, we'll keep going anyway. I mean, it is, it, it, it is scary because that was a prescription for disaster because the airplane had been trimmed and possibly had some trim that got that airplane airborne, that would have really been trouble. So it is crazy. Well, it wouldn't have been the first airplane that has taken off with the gust lock installed. Yeah, I know. And we're going to be talking about a turbofan corporate jet that did that. One of the other ones, and, and of course, unfortunately, this one was a, a fatal accident. But, again, there are some curious things. And, again, you and I have talked about these, these issues on um, previous podcasts. And it's another reminder. It says, the private pilot and student pilot passenger were departing on a local personal flight from a 2,000-foot turf runway in a Cessna 150. The airplane struggled to climb, according to the passenger. He heard the stall warning horn activate. The plane descended into trees, hit the ground. The student pilot survived with serious injury. The private pilot, unfortunately, was killed. And uh, the investigation, they make note, a review of the pilot's logbook revealed no current flight review or recent flight experience, and the pilot did not hold a current medical. In addition, Reported wind conditions at a nearby airport indicated that a quartering tailwind may have been present at about the time of the accident with gusts up to 20 knots. Oh, Where is the logic that 
for whatever reason, you don't think you have to play by the rules. You don't have to abide by getting a flight review, staying proficient, and holding a medical certificate, and 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 you take someone with you and put them in a position of jeopardy like that. I, I just I cannot understand the logic. It is not like riding a bicycle. It's just sad. It is just totally sad that somebody with apparently the presence of mind to make these decisions made these decisions that jeopardized not only his life, but that of a passenger. How many times have we seen this and they just don't go away? No. They just don't go away. And, And it's unbelievable that over and over and over and over again, how do we get the point across? How do we educate these people that they're not one above the law, which the FARs are the law, and two, what makes them think that they are Chuck Yeager that, you know, without any prior experience or, or recency of experience and things like that, that they can just, you know, kick the tires, light the fire and rock and roll and we're going to have a good time. No, in fact, we've talked about this, but uh, my fear is that after this second lockdown that appears to be just on the horizon, when we have these pilots come back and start to fly, we're going to have a lot of these because they're just not proficient. They haven't been flying. Some people may not have flown for over a year by the time we get through the second wave of, of COVID. And if they don't go flying with somebody like an instructor pilot to uh, hone their skills again, they get them refresh their skills again. I mean, I think we're going to have a number of, of these kinds of accidents again. And then, of course, some people tried to fly their aircraft as though they were driving their car. It says, plane crash after student tries to pass on the taxiway. The student pilot in a low-wing Piper PA-28 reported that after landing at the airport in Miami, she exited the runway onto a taxiway, which was occupied by a high-wing airplane that landed before her. She attempted to pass the high-wing airplane on the left, but her right wing hit the other plane's tail. I mean, mean, you're landing, you roll out. It's, I mean, there's a pretty big obstruction sitting on that taxiway. Either you slow that airplane down if you're going to try and use that same taxiway, or you just roll beyond it and go get off on another taxiway. But try and think that you're going to pass like you're passing in in your car on a two-lane road. It's just, I mean, it, it, it is entertaining. I feel bad because it was a student pilot, but where does common sense come in? Where's the instructor? Where's, you know, basic aeronautical knowledge? Oh, she must have been flying on a student ticket with no instructor. Must have been building time. But going into Miami? Well, an airport in Miami. So it's, it was probably one of the surrounding GA airports. Right, Opelaka or or Tamiami. Yeah. Now, this one is uh, the coup de grace, John. I mean, <laughs> I read it I read it twice just to make sure that I captured all of it. It says, flying with a cast leads to loss of directional control. The pilot reported that he was flying while wearing an air cast boot. During landing to the airport in Rock Hill, South Carolina, the Aerostar 601 decelerated, and he asked the passenger to move his feet up on the brake pedals and apply the brakes. He added that the passenger applied insufficient differential brake application, and the airplane veered left. The passenger applied right brake and right rudder to correct, but the plane then veered right, left the runway, and hit a ditch, sustaining substantial damage. The pilot was wearing the boot, Due to a previous injury, he said he had the ability to fully manipulate both rudder controls, but the boot prevented him from being able to fully apply brake pressure. I mean, oh my God. First off, a Piper Aerostar is not an airplane that has any kind of margin of forgiveness. 
you lose an engine on that airplane during takeoff, you are going to find yourself in the weeds swapping in. You have to be ready, physically capable of handling an engine out situation, whether it's on the ground or in the air. But then to ask a passenger, hey, Charlie, do me a favor, get on the brakes. Uh, it doesn't say whether or not this passenger had any kind of aviation experience, but it's obvious that whatever experience or lack thereof, that airplane uh, ended up paying the price and so did the pilot. But again, where is the common sense, especially for a multi-engine rated pilot flying a Piper Aerostar, thinking that, hey, Charlie, you know, just get up on the brake pedals. You put the brakes on. I'll handle everything else. Wow. Wow. <laughs> John. Just, I, I, just beyond description and words. <laughs> it's nuts. I mean, they are, I mean, they are entertaining. We, we, at least some of them we can laugh at because this is definitely a bruised airplane and a bruised eco. But why would you even make that decision or get into an airplane with the thought of, I can do pretty much all of these things, but I can't do every single thing. It, it, it just, there's no words to describe the stupidity. Well, John, I think that this is going to be a regular addition to our show. We talked about it during one of the first shows we ever did, and we were going to have a segment called WTF. Right. I think these, I think these events fall perfectly into that category of WTF. Yes. You know, everybody likes to see the mistakes that other people make, but you have to take these mistakes that go beyond the pale. I mean, they're just, they're so gross, you can't even comprehend them. How did these people get their license to start with? I know. And when you think about all the things that we look at, John, when we're dissecting pilot performance in an accident, of course, we're looking using advisory circular 60-22, which is aeronautical decision making. And you try to look at the decisions that a pilot has made and lump them into one of the categories, whether it's macho or reservation or something like that here. I mean, you, you have overconfidence in your own personal skills, abilities, and knowledge and think that I can fly a very high-performance twin-engine airplane. I got this big cast on my foot. And I guarantee if you lose an engine in that airplane, it's all it's going to take to hold that airplane going in a straight line, you know, in an engine-out situation. And, you know, low, slow, you're, I mean, it, it defies logic. And I would love to see what the FAA did to follow up with a guy like this. Did they counsel him? Did they yank his certificate for a period of time? What did they do to get the point across that, one, the decision you made to even conduct that flight was stupid, and now we're going to let you sit on the ground and think about it for a while? Yeah, let's hope that they took some action. But, you know, that makes the rest of us look bad when you read things like this you know i mean i can understand i can i can you know give something away to that student pilot who tried to go around the other airplane you know for a variety of different reasons but i mean i'd be talking to her instructor in a heartbeat to find out what he or she was teaching this student pilot but you gotta you got it's apparent that he's some level of, of accomplishment in uh, his pilotage because he owns a 601 he must have a multi-engine rating and then he goes out and makes a ridiculous decision like that to operate the airplane and then expect somebody sitting in the other seat to assist in the operation of the airplane it's just i don't know i mean the other person in the other seat if he had any aviation savvy at all would have said what are you doing <laughs> yeah exactly it's it's crazy The thing that scares me, and I think this is a, a good segue, is that we see improper decisions. We see improper operation of aircraft for a variety of different reasons, whether it's, of course, skills, abilities, knowledge, experience, 
capabilities, lack of training, lack of proficiency. But what we also see, and it's becoming a, a chronic finding by the NTSB in their accident investigations, is the increase in prescription and non-prescription slash illicit drugs in the uh, tox samples of these accidents that uh, that have resulted in fatalities. And I mean, for all the time that I was with the NTSB, yeah, I did see an occasional, you know, some sort of prescription drug or you know, something that uh, was in the pilot system that could impair either their judgment, their motor skills, or a combination of both. And of course, over the years, we've seen the alcohol in a pilot system. But now the NTSB has recently come out with a study that they did looking at a bunch of accidents in about a five-year, it was 2013 to 2017 period, where they dissected over a thousand fatal accidents in that five-year period, where some level of narcotic was found in the pilot's system. And when you read this, it's scary, John. It is scary. And, and add to it, we have states like Colorado, your hometown, that has legalized marijuana. But now add to that list Oregon that just approved not only marijuana. Hallucinogenic drugs, yeah. Right. So yep. Crazy, crazy what we're doing. They're allowing people to go have a good time, but people with pilot's licenses have to stay away from that stuff. Because any kind of drug, even if it's been legalized in a particular state, is still a federal offense because the feds regard these as uh, prohibited drugs. But like alcohol, and a lot of us can probably relate that, you know, that eight-hour bottle-to-throttle time frame that we all said, yep, I stopped eight hours before I got in the airplane. That alcohol, if you consumed a lot of it, has not completely metabolized out of your system and you still have residual effects. And we're finding this with marijuana. We're finding this with a number of other illicit drugs. But the bigger thing, John, that I noticed when reading about this study is the impairing drugs or the drugs that the board has been finding that are over-the-counter, either antihistamine-type drugs. But the biggest thing is the prescription drugs and those types of prescription drugs that have some sort of either mental effect or physiological effect to impair a pilot's ability to either make good decisions or operate the aircraft properly. Yeah, there's a lot of over-the-counter drugs. People think uh, simple Claritin and Sudafed. I mean, it, it, those antihistamines, you take them routinely. I use them in the springtime because I have a tree and grass allergy. And if I take them too, too many days in a row, I sometimes can feel myself slowing down in my decisions. It takes a little longer to, to make a decision. So it, they do have a cumulative effect on you if you take them over and over. And they just, you know, in an airplane, you don't have 15 or 30 seconds to make a decision. You've got sometimes barely a second to make a decision. And on top of that, I mean, okay, you might be able to get away with some of this stuff while flying VFR. Now you put yourself in an IFR or IMC environment, that's a real issue. <laughs> I mean, you're going to induce a lot of bad things besides bad judgment. You know, vertigo, spatial disorientation, all of these things. And it was interesting because I was looking at the chart that's in this board report and Back in the, and they have a variety of different periods of time. Back in the 1990 to 97 period, cardiovascular drugs, they found a 2.4% rate of toxicology reports identifying cardiovascular drugs. And it progressively increases so that during the 2008 to 2012 period, it had jumped. 10% up to 12.4%. And then in this latest period, 2013 to 2017, it was already or all the way up to 18.2%. Yeah. 
And while that, you know, it's like, yes, so what? Those are medications for some sort of cardiovascular event. They don't define what it is, whether that's because of a stroke or because of a heart attack. All of this particular period of time, this 2013 to 17 period, sedating antihistamines have gone up almost 7%. Antidepressants have gone up by 6%. You know, sedating pain relievers has, has only gone up a little bit. Illicit drugs has gone up about 3 or 4%. But again, the fact that they're finding these kinds of drugs in pilots is very, very disconcerting just because, again, they're flying in our airspace. And while aviation, once you get in the air, is somewhat predictable, as we've all been taught, if you are following the regulations and you are doing what is expected of you as a prudent pilot, we pretty much all know what someone is doing, both in the VFR and the IFR environment. Yeah, we have those one-offs, we have those cowboys, we have the the issues where, yeah, we run two airplanes together because people weren't talking to each other, failed to see and avoid, things like that. But when you have these types of drugs, I mean, these are percentages based on the, the accidents that they, they examine the toxicology results. I mean, that is a lot of pilots they're finding a positive drug screen for in these fatal accidents. That's sky high. Not just a lot. It's it's really up there. I mean, what's going on? I mean, it's a problem in society today with drugs. But people that want to fly have always been a cut above the average averages that we see in society. But maybe, maybe we have uh, been holding ourselves up too high that we don't deserve it. Maybe the younger generation today is much more cavalier about the use of drugs and doesn't believe that it's a problem. And, and I think it, it, it is a societal problem because we have legalized all these things. But now where do you draw the boundary? I know that a friend of mine is a, uh, a state trooper and another friend of mine that lives in my neighborhood is a sheriff's deputy. And they're now training officers to try and detect drivers who are under the influence of marijuana and that kind of thing, because it is legal out here when they're pulling people over, giving them a test. They're trying to find ways to identify whether they're under the influence, similar to, of course, alcohol. And I started pulling some reports, John, and I know that you've reviewed these same reports that I sent you. You know, three years ago, here you have a 56-year-old pilot and a 38-year-old passenger who died in a Beechcraft 300, it's a twin-engine airplane. It's a high-performance airplane. Witnesses said that they watched this airplane roll down the runway, and on the rotation, it pitched up rapidly during the takeoff with uh, the pilot standing that airplane on its tail, basically. It went up, came back down, slid 650 feet upside down, hit a concrete wall, and, uh, and both... Uh, occupants were fatal. They found in the pilot's toxicology not only THC, which is marijuana, they found amphetamines, they found antidepressants, and anti-seizure anxiety medication. I mean, really? Really? I mean, it sounds like the drugs alone should have killed them. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it, it is just fundamentally wrong that pilots like this would make a calculated conscious decision and believe that they could operate any aircraft let alone this this uh, twin engine beach but the bigger thing is john you know the faa has put out over the years you know these pre-flight risk management tools for pilots i'm safe and and am i fit to fly you know these are checks that we as pilots are supposed to do do you feel good do you feel well enough are you you know mentally in the right frame of mind to fly have you taken anything that uh, could impair your ability to make good decisions and operate the aircraft 
And I know that this stuff has been out. It's been talked about. We use it as a research tool. We use it as a reference tool when we write reports. But again, the message just doesn't seem to be sinking in. I mean, and it's funny because, you know, we, we see it a lot with helicopters and, and airplanes. But I found this one report, John, that I think I sent you involving a hot air balloon. And you go, well, you know, so what? The guy's got some drugs in him. Hot air balloons don't move very fast. It's not the, the speed that is killing people. In this particular instance, this was a very high visibility accident that occurred four years ago down in Texas. There were 16 people in the basket of this hot air balloon that was, uh, it was at a, a balloon festival in Texas. They had taken off. Of course, there were some environmental conditions that the pilot had to try to navigate. Unfortunately, the balloon drifted into high power lines. And I mean, I think if I remember right, this is the one where there was video. As it went into the power lines, you see the shorting of the power lines, the, the balloon, the envelope catches fire, the basket is hanging there. And, and it, it was just an ugly, ugly accident. But the big thing, John, is that they found that the pilot had a multiple of cold and allergy medications. He had Valium in his system. Apparently, this is a chronic problem for him because he had a record for, for alcohol abuse and drunken driving. And he ignored all of the prudent information a pilot would look at with regard to the weather and apparently became invincible and decided that he could make this happen. And you've heard me use this term before. This guy thought he was Captain Courageous. I can make it happen. I can accomplish the mission. Yeah, too, in fact, too many pilots have that attitude. And too many mechanics, quite frankly, as well. You know, and we haven't had much, fake, much focus on maintenance personnel and other personnel in the operations and their physical condition. You know, when I look at FBOs, like I did just yesterday, and the young guys out in the fueling truck, you know, they're maybe 18 years old. And given what, what uh, we see in kids today at that age, I'm sure that there was three of them. I'm sure one of them at least had recently probably smoked a joint. Or ate a brownie or, you know, all the other methods of of ingesting that. And. And now you're going to entrust him to put the right amount of fuel and the right type of fuel into your airplane. We've never really had the numbers of these problems like we are having today. Today, there's just, I mean, like the percentage you said, I mean, those are staggering to have those kinds of numbers in aviation. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is, but it, it's sort of disheartening to see that. Let me give you one more, because, again, I don't understand the mentality. And, and this one involves a flight instructor. He's an older guy, happened to be 70 years old. He was a, a flight instructor who had ingested cocaine oh. in himself, and he's with a student. <laughs> they take off. They're flying down in Florida. Witnesses saw the airplane flying low, heard the engine, quote, sputter, like they all do, and then saw the airplane spiral down into a swampy area. The board gets out there. They do their investigation. They find out that this flight instructor had cocaine and marijuana in his system at the time. They couldn't tell, I guess, because of the condition of the body, what you know, whether this had already started to metabolize out and whether they were through their half-life and all that kind of stuff. So they don't know the effect. But the fact that they found cocaine and marijuana, and this guy is a flight instructor who is supposed to set the example. He takes a unknowing student, I would presume, on a flight. They go out and do things puts the airplane into a position where they lose control. And I, I say they because you got kind of two pilots, one and a half. But you, you have a flight instructor who should have had all of his faculties about him to 
identify and correct that situation. But it's obvious that it may have been him who set them up for disaster because of these psychoactive drugs that were in his system when they were out doing some level of flight training. And I just cannot comprehend that kind of carelessness, callousness, and total disregard for someone else. I mean, you want to go out there and do that? You know, you want to be high and go out and fly? Go do it by yourself and go do it out in the middle of nowhere where you're not going to hurt anybody if something bad happens. But to take people that are unknowingly innocent victims in these cases, it's a travesty. It is just sad that mentality exists within our rank and file. And I know that I'm preaching to the choir, and yeah, not all of us are saints. I understand that. But again, alcohol, yes, you, we see that more prevalent. But now the, the scary thing is, is that these drugs are now becoming more pervasive, and that's the, the saddest part. Yeah, more and more accidents see it. And, you know, to a certain extent, in reading what you sent me and, I, and some that I had read previously— when they interview other pilots in the area, other people at the FBO, oftentimes the comments come back that they knew he was on drugs, they knew he was using alcohol, but yet no one, no one did anything about it. No one dropped a dime to the FAA. There's an anonymous number for the FAA. You don't have to say who you are, but you can put them on. You know, you can save their life, and it might be your life because we've had mid-air collisions and ground collisions. Uh, of airplanes with people that are under the influence of drugs or alcohol. So it, it really does pay if if you work in an FBO or you operate in and out of an FBO and you know somebody is, is behaving improperly, let the FAA know. It's not a case of snitching. It's a case of saving a life, either his or hers or some innocent person's life. Yeah. And again, you know, you and I aren't doctors. We occasionally play them on TV <laughs> in, in that award-winning acclaimed series, The Phony Doctors. Um, so, you know, we're not, we're not preaching anything as, as medical experts. We are reading the findings. But I, I can speak for myself, John, having been doing this work now 40 years, and when I go out and investigate an accident and I get the tox and the autopsy results back and I see these kinds of levels, as an investigator, it is up to me with the assistance of a medical professional to interpret these results. Now, some of these, yes, they're metabolites. You know, they've gone through their half-life. They just happen to have this residual amount of whatever drug is in their system that may not have had any kind of influence on their skills, abilities, and knowledge. But it is apparent that at least some of the accidents, these accidents that we've just talked about, that the drugs were of sufficient quantity to have at least either raised a high level of suspicion by the board or have actually been named as a contributing factor to the impairment and improper judgment of the pilot in the operation of an aircraft. That's the biggest takeaway from this. And, you know, like you said, with COVID, we're gonna have people that are sitting around, they're locked up in, uh, in their own little worlds, if you will. They are itching to get out. I know that <laughs> I've heard from some of my police officer friends that they've gone on a lot of house calls because people are sitting around drinking more alcohol and, of course, out here enjoying the, uh, the spoils of uh, laced brownies and cookies and gummies and all sorts of stuff. And they're getting themselves in trouble and because they're bored. I hate to see anybody that does that is kind of bored and decides that they're going to go out and fly. You know, we haven't mentioned anything about secondhand smoke, too. You know, I worked with a guy who ultimately had to go to go to uh, counseling because he tested positive for marijuana. And his girlfriend, who I knew both of them, and and uh, we used to laugh, call her a chimney. Uh, she had a joint with her. She woke up in the morning and, and had a joint, and she smoked all day long. 
Didn't matter where you were, that she smoked all day long. I don't know how much money she spent, because around here that stuff's expensive. I don't know what it's like where it's legal. But around here, it's it's uh, everybody complains about how much it costs. And all she did was smoke. And then when he got drug tested, he got it, and he swears up and down, and I kind of believe him, that he doesn't or never partook with her. But he was with her all the time when she was smoking, and he got it at least by second hand in enough quantity that it triggered the the uh, drug tests. Yeah. You bring up a good point right there, John, and you talked about it a little earlier. And given the fact that, you know, while marijuana and other types of drugs may be legalized in, in various states around these United States, it is still a federal offense. And if you work in a safety-sensitive position in aviation where drug testing is required, you're going to get whacked. There is no forgiveness. And even if you hold like a medical marijuana card or something like that, they don't care. Because if you get if you get popped in a drug test for a positive, I would bet my bottom dollar 99.999% of the time, you're no longer going to be employed. Yes. Like some of the airlines will give you a, a second chance to go to go to a, a treatment program. But my experience with the second chances are uh, those that were really users will do it again and get caught. Yeah. And we're going to talk about that. You, you, I'm glad you segued into that, these second chances. My office partner, who we're going to uh, have on the show in the very near future, is an aviation psychologist. He works on behalf of the FAA to do these kinds of rehab type activities on behalf of the FAA for people who have been substance abuse users who have had some sort of medical issue that has resulted in the the loss of their medical and what hoops they have to jump through the cognitive tests i mean he sitting in the office when these guys come in he puts them through a battery of tests because he has to do an evaluation to ensure not only are they clean and, and can get back into their respective flying or maintenance duties, but he's, he's got to look at, do they have the cognitive skills as well? So we're going to have him on the show to take all of this to the next level to get a better understanding. Because if you do get popped, and, and as you said, John, if they do give you a second chance, it's not like they give you a warning and say, don't do it again. They will make you go through these things. And of course, the FAA will make you go through these things as well. And it can be a very long, drawn out and an expensive process. Yes, protecting your job. And then the other people, you know, I talked about the the young kids with the fuel trucks and fuel loads and all the rest of it. But the airlines had it for a while. I don't know what it's like right now. But for a while, we had a major problem with the guys that load the airplanes. And we know what what a bad weight and balance can do to an airplane, especially some of these airplanes where the, the freight in the belly is, is substantial. And we used to joke in the 90s, I can remember joking, Every time there was an accident on the ramp, so if you if you smashed your baggage tug into the baggage carts and the supervisor saw you, they would drug test you, and inevitably you'd get fired because they tested positive. And so we used to joke that at the rate they were going, we won't have anybody to work the ramp because apparently that was pretty prevalent among that age group and in that type of job, it was pretty prevalent that they were... Uh, smoking marijuana, I believe. I don't know about hard drugs. But the fact that in some of the areas around aviation, it's pretty prevalent. I guess maybe we should have expected it to fall over into into the uh, ranks of the younger pilots, too. And mechanics. Yeah. Anybody, really. But when we start to see it, it's, it, it has become obvious with alcohol and pilots. That has been a known issue for a very long time. We've seen a rash of pilots getting trap lined, going through TSA screening procedures and things like that. But you can't really use that same kind of screening if somebody is on some type of drug, either legal or illegal or illicit. But the one thing that I didn't mention, and there is a bit of a, a joke here, and I, because this is a family show, John, I'm not going to take it there other than to say 
one of the newest drugs that we're finding, or at least are being found in the toxicologies, is a very significant increase in erectile dysfunction drugs. And according to the statistic, in a 10-year period, it has doubled as far as being found in the system of pilots. And, of course, there is a number of jokes we could talk about, you know, the, the four-hour issue and, and everything else. But, again, you start loading up things like that. I'm not sure, and, and we'll have to ask Chuck when we have him on the show, but uh, we'll have to talk about some of these drugs and, and really what their effect is, even if the numbers don't really appear to be significant when it comes to a tox and that kind of thing. Because I've had where I thought the number was high, but then when I talk to a medical professional, they say, no, that's the metabolites and it's broken down and it, it's substantially higher in regards to possibly a, a prescriptive drug and things like that. So it does get very interesting. And But I, I happen to notice that, that there is a, it, it has doubled in 10 years findings of these prostate erectile dysfunction drugs in pilots. You know, and we haven't even mentioned the interactions. You know, sometimes a drug by itself might be benign, but if you're taking something else or some other symptom you have, the two of them combined could cause you a lot of grief. Yes. And, uh, and a lot of research is missing on that because they don't research every drug, how it interfaces with any other drug. And that's one of the reasons why when you hear the drug commercials on TV, prescription drugs on TV, to make sure you tell your medical provider and whatever else you're taking. And where that's prevalent, John, is people that are taking blood pressure medicine and antihistamines. Yeah, right. Just the opposite, right? They can have a real dramatic effect, that interaction, or pain relievers whether it's an aspirin or a, a acetaminophen or, or something like that, they too can have, I won't say devastating, but they can have... Unintended consequence. Yeah, exactly. That's a good way to put it. So you got to be careful of what you're mixing. Prescription, non-prescription, or over-the-counter, you think that it's benign when in fact it's really doing something that has unintended consequences. Yeah, well, I think we talked that that issue down and we'll we'll continue that when we get your doctor friend on and continue that discussion because it's obvious that this problem is is uh, growing you know the latest data is still over a year old so we can only imagine and it's been going up every year so there's no telling where it is today as compared to 2018 study i think the biggest takeaway though john is pilots need to fall back and look at the risk management tools that the FAA has and really do some introspective examination using the I'm safe and are you fit to fly profiles. I mean, are you all there mentally, physically? Are you on any kind of drug that could cause you to put yourself into a position at jeopardy and looking at the environment that you're going to fly in? Because some of these drugs, as we talked about, yeah, you might be able to get away with it on a VFR day. But if you go into IMC, it's a whole different ballgame. So really, take a look at the I'm safe and, and the fit to fly profiles and ask yourself those questions. Because the last thing you and I want to be doing is investigating anybody. And the furthest thing from my mind when I do have to investigate is I'm hoping not to see anybody that has anything in their in their tox if it's a fatal accident. You know, I, I know we're going to do something on, on the accident investigators in the future, but I just wanted to make one point to everybody, that when accident investigators go to the scene over and over and over and end up seeing what the results of an accident, whether it's stupid or not stupid, you can't be human beings and not be touched by seeing the what the sites that we see and have seen at accident sites. So it takes a toll on the accident investigator as well as a toll on the families. And of course, the toll on the, on the victim is absolute, it's fatal. But the people that are left behind pay a price for that too. 
And with that sort of negative, uh, not too happy note, I think we can uh, wrap up this discussion today. I remind everybody that, that our show is being bought by Eventco Insurance Company. And again, you can get a discount just by mentioning the fact that you listen to the show. So if you're renewing your policy or it's, you're going to get a new policy, call Avemco, 888-879-0389, or visit avemco.com and uh, get a price for your insurance. And I'll let you have the last word, Greg. Well, thank you for giving me the last word, John. Normally, I'm throwing it to you, but uh, it's always good to talk to you. These are the kinds of subjects that we believe that you know need to be talked about. We try to at least couch it in such a way so that it's not so negative, but it just heightens the awareness because we're coming into the holiday season. I think that if you really broke some of these numbers down, you would see that these numbers escalate around holidays for a variety of obvious reasons. So again, it's up to us to police ourselves. And for those that are on basic med that don't have a lot of oversight, you have to really be policing yourself. So heed the message and and definitely, um, again, don't put yourself, your family, your friends in a position that could compromise your safety or theirs. We always appreciate feedback. We got a little bit of some um, questions about, you know, accidents such as this involving drugs and alcohol. So we get that feedback from you, the listener. You can contact us at any time through our email at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. We appreciate the feedback. I know that, John, you just got some good feedback from folks that we know. And, uh, you know, that helps us make the show better. Uh, They always have some good suggestions for us. So, again, we appreciate that. And uh, they give us topics that we try to cover using not only the discussions and the research, but, of course, accidents that that put some practical application to it. So with that, my friend, it's uh, good to see you via Zoom. I can't wait to be in in studio with you. And, uh, of course, I'm looking forward to uh, harassing you when we are together. So, it doesn't look uh, like that's going to be anytime soon, given the numbers. <laughs> yeah, well, as long as I can see your smiling face on Zoom, that's all that matters, buddy. So, again, uh, I want you to stay safe, wear your mask, make sure you wash your hands. Those are the, the two best things you can do to, to stay safe. And for those of you who travel and are flying both as a passenger and as a pilot, we always want you to fly safe. Thanks for listening. To listen to more episodes of the show, go to flightsafetydetectives.com or the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association at pama.org and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Catch us next time when John Golia and Greg Fife talk about all things aviation. Thanks for listening. <laughs>